Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 40 today. And uh, if you haven't taken a look at the subscription or superscription, it's another Psalm of David. Now, we don't know all the circumstances that this Psalm was written under. However, we do know Um, the content of it, obviously. It could be another psalm where David is dealing with consequences to his own sin, but it just as easily could be one of the many times that he's facing opposition from different men, whether that's Absalom or Saul or many of his enemies. Uh, What we do know, again, is that this is written out of a place of much anguish and despair where David finds himself in trouble once again, which is pretty common if you haven't guessed that by now. But we also get a wonderful portrayal of a man who literally casts all of his cares upon God. But more than this, he stands firm in a time of much hardship. Again, we don't know the details to everything going on in David's life at this point, but we do sense some camaraderie with him, at least in some sense, because it's just vague enough to where we can insert ourselves into that and relate to him. The reality is that in life, we always maybe have the illusion of safety and control, but we do find ourselves in a pit of despair at times, do we not? We find that we are desperate. As Spurgeon put it, there are no sons without sorrow. And so the question we simply ask then is, how do sons of sorrow or those who face the constant reality of sin, Satan, and death in this life stand firmly while everything else is sinking around them? Well, David actually gives us an answer to that question in this psalm today. He gives us four firm foundations that we are to stand upon, that we must stand upon as those who trust in in God. So if you would look with me now to verses four or one through five, actually, we'll see the first firm foundation, which is God's faithfulness. So again, David finds himself in the throes of an incredible trial as he writes this psalm. Yet despite how bleak his circumstances actually are, I want you to notice the first thing he actually does is just simply look back to the faithfulness of God. Well, he says, starting in verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. And the way the Hebrew captures this is that there's an intensity to it. If you were to translate it literally, it'd be waiting, I waited for the Lord. And so evidently he was waiting for quite some time, but he has every expectation that God will actually answer his prayers. He will actually rescue him. And that's just what the Lord did. We see that as we continue to look on. He says that the Lord inclined to me and he heard my cry in verse one again. Now, when he says that God actually inclined to him, it speaks of God bowing down low to David and reaching out to him, if you will. And we see this all the more as we see the continuation of what David says in verse 2 and onward. Notice he says in verse 2, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Notice how he describes this as his pit of destruction. Uh, out of the miry clay. These are words that describe really a bleak and a hopeless time for David. Whatever it was, he's sinking down into the muck and a mire, and little by little, he's just continuing to get pulled down further and further and further. 
As he struggles to pull himself out, he sinks down all the more. No one's around to help him. He has nothing to grab a hold of and stop from being swallowed up by the muck and the mire. And in his desperation, he does the only thing he knows to do, which is to cry out to his God. Now, whether he's literally thrown down into the pit or he's speaking metaphorically doesn't really matter all that much because what he's describing here is this reality that, again, we all face at some point in life. Now, perhaps we find ourselves being pulled down by the weight of sin. We try and try and pull ourselves out, but no matter what we try and do, we just make the situation worse. Little by little, we sink down into the abyss because our sin is catching up to us. Or perhaps it is simply that we find life spiraling, and I mean spiraling, outside of our control. Maybe it's a sickness, it's a betrayal, it's a growing sense of even just that hopelessness of living in a broken and sin-filled world. Maybe it's opposition to your faith. But regardless of whatever it may be, we find ourselves with our head just above the surface, waiting to sink down into the depths, mere moments from death. But notice what happens in in verse 2 here. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Right? He inclined to me. He heard my cry. David is actually heard by God. He's actually heard. God stoops down into the pit with him, if you will, pulls him out and places him on solid ground once again. No longer were David's circumstances wildly beyond his control, but it's not due to anything within David. Now, the language of the first two verses is so abundantly clear to show that it's only by the sheer grace of God that David actually finds rescue here. It's only by the grace of God he finds himself safe. It was the Lord who saw. It was Yahweh who heard. It was God who stooped over. It was his Lord who pulled him out of the muck. And it was ultimately God who took him out of the muck and put him on solid ground. In all of it, he is safe, but it's not because of David. It is literally because God acted on his behalf. But notice that God didn't just save David. This is one of the incredible things about God's salvation. He says here, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Well, what's the inevitable result of salvation but praise, right? David is saved and he immediately leaps to song. So you can't help but give God the glory he is due when he brings you out of the miry pit, if you will, and places you upon the rock. I mean, that's just the natural disposition of one who's been saved. You're thankful. But what's incredibly special about it here is that this praise is all designed to rebound. Now, what I mean by that is that the inevitable result of praise is that more, more worshipers are added to the mix. This is what David says in verse 3. Notice he says, many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. So while David takes his time to actually look back upon God's past faithfulness, God saved him. He pulled him out of this desperate position. He also looks forward to that same act of mercy now having an effect on a new group of people, but continually. As a result of saving David, he says that many are going to see, they're going to fear, they're going to trust in Yahweh. When the people would hear David's report, think of it back in the past, when they would hear of this, they would know of the one true source of salvation. The result is that they would come to actually a deeper trust in God himself. Think of it in in light of this. We all sit here today in this very room 
hearing the same exact thing that they did. And Lord willing, it will be a thing of praise to you by the end of this sermon. Way back when God saved David and that very act of salvation, whatever it was, is actually an occasion for praise for you today. That's the beautiful thing about praise. That's just a small glimpse of what we're going to be doing throughout all eternity. It's designed, beloved, to show the faithfulness of God, but not just to us, to everyone else. It's to bring God all the more glory, but it also testifies to this reality of really how blessed those who have been saved are. Now, that's the transition he starts to make here. Notice he shows us this in verses 4 through 5. Now, David begins by describing this active state of blessing upon the one who has made the Lord his trust, right? This blessed man is the one who trusts in the Lord. He does not turn to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Now, what he uses here, at least for the word proud, is the nickname that Egypt became known by later on, or actually in the time of David. So it's, there's this delicious bit of irony going on here, if you will. When you think of Egypt, what do you think of? You think of the Exodus event, right? And what did God do? But he opposed a proud-hearted Pharaoh. In every aspect of what he did in pouring out judgment and plagues upon the land, it is in opposition to the proud-hearted Pharaoh. And so every single Hebrew would have picked up on this, but more than this, it's also designed to actually teach us about the blessed man. The man who trusts in the Lord is blessed because he does not turn to the way of the proud, right? He does not go the way of Egypt, if you want to make that connection. He does not obstinately reject his Lord and therefore suffer under his judgments. Instead, he finds himself the recipient of God's own grace and even faithfulness, right? There's a polar opposite reaction that here to the man who is blessed as opposed to the man who is suffering under the judgment of God. Well, then David speaks of those who lapsed into falsehood or lies, and and wrapped up in this is just the many false gods that would have been prevalent to people in this day where they would turn to them instead for salvation and help. Well, David knows the one that hears his words and turns to the one true God is actually hearing truth, right? But the one who turns to the proud or those who hold the falsehoods ultimately will never be saved. They will never find deliverance. Instead, they will simply, or simply sink down all the more into the miry pit that he's describing in verses 1 and 2. He says, in opposition to that, though, the ones who trust in the Lord are blessed. They are actively blessed. They actually sit in that place at all times. They will see God's salvation. They will fear him. They will trust in him. But ultimately, they're going to experience the same exact type of salvation in some sense that David does. That's ultimately what he's saying here. He says, they too, in other words, are going to find their help in time of need. Well, and much like David in verse 5 then, they're actually going to sing out, many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Right? Notice he focuses on both the works and the thoughts of God towards his people here. Tony touched on this in his prayer earlier, but then God would actually even be mindful of his people should blow your minds every single day. Well, here he has in mind all the things that God has done to save his people in the past, but also these future plans that God has, all the things that are waiting for them. In all of these things, he says, there is none like him. Even if you were to try and count all the things the Lord has done and all the things that he will do, it would be impossible. 
So every bit of what David is saying here and will continue to say through this psalm then is to help the people of God truly see they have every reason to trust him. If you take one thing away from this sermon today, let it be that. You have every reason, beloved, to trust your God. He is yet to fail you in your time of need. He will not fail you in the future. He is unchanging. He never pulls back his promises. So all you must do in one sense is simply look back on the faithfulness of God to see it on display. You will look to the past and see how he has preserved you and sustained you. But then don't just stop there. Look to how he promises to continue that very great work. Even if everything else in life fails, and I mean everything, nothing can remove the promises that God has made to you and to the church, to all those whom he has saved. In other words, God's faithfulness is timeless. Just as he has always been faithful, he will forever be faithful. And therefore, this is a firm foundation for any who trust him. Is it not? Not only can we look back and see all the ways that God has preserved us and sustained us, we can look ahead, right? We, we look by faith, but we still look ahead. We see that in every single instance, he proves faithful. And so we are moved to trust that in future days and months and years and every other aspect of even our eternal abode, that he is faithful, One of the free, cheap advice or pieces of advice that I give to those who are in need of counsel all the time, especially if they're having a hard time just simply being thankful, is to literally write down five things you're thankful for every day. Make them different. You'll never run out. Or you keep a prayer journal. All those times that God has answered your prayers. I mean, Tony, you're shaking your head yes. You're like, I've done this, right? You, you see all the ways that God has been faithful, and then you can bring that and show that to your children. You can show it to people you're counseling or whomever else you desire and show them this is how God has been faithful. Is it not an encouragement to just simply look back and see all that God has done in all the ways that he has been gracious where he did not need to be, even in those moments where he has refused to give in to what we want and given us what we actually need instead, he is still faithful and bringing us everywhere we need to be and go. More than this, you can remind yourself, though, in Christ that you rest upon the most solid ground ever, right? It's not just this subjective aspect of your faith. It's this reality that in Christ we are safe. All of these testimonies of God's faithfulness remind you of that moment in which he plucked you out of darkness and despair and brought you into light and showed grace and faithfulness to his own character even and brought you to a point of being able to show faithfulness as well. You can know again that without a shadow of a doubt that if you are in Christ, you are safe. He will not abandon you. He will bring you one day to see the fullness of joy and the fullness of salvation. And so even if you're in a season of life right now where everything seems like there's no sure footing, can I simply not just point you back to Christ? One great day, he will take you he will raise you before your father to cause you to stand blameless and with great joy. No matter what else is sinking around you today, that is a sure reality that he has given us in scripture. Is that not firm footing, beloved? 
Is it not firm-footing to see what he's done and continues to do, but will he, what he will always and ever do for those who are in him? More than this, though, it is one what we must speak. God's faithfulness is to be our testimony, always, ever on our lips, not only for ourselves, but for our spouse, for our children, for our neighbors even. Speak of God's faithfulness over and again. The, the, the hope of the gospel wrapped up in that is you speaking of God's faithfulness, right? So again, the first firm foundation is the faithfulness of God. In every aspect of life, we are to lean upon his faithfulness because even if we prove to be faithless, he is faithful. Well, then as he moves to verses six through eight, David brings out another firm foundation for us to stand upon, and that is his word, God's word. So understand as we look at this section, David's response to the Lord's faithfulness, for one, is, is dedication. He sees that God is utterly faithful, and now I'm going to dedicate the whole of my life to God. But there's also much more going on in this passage than meets the eye at first. So as he speaks to the fact that sacrifice and meal offering is not desired by the Lord, nor has he required these burnt offerings and sin offerings, he is, in fact, alluding to Christ. Now, if you were part of the Hebrews class, you remember this, but in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, he pulls this passage and speaks to this idea that this is actually messianic. This is speaking of Christ. It's showing that uh, the sacrificial system and all its glory really was inadequate, right? He goes on to say that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to fully remove the stain and corruption of sin. Year after year, the high priest just makes these sacrifices. It's this never-ending river of blood. And yet in Christ, he who, he who came to do the complete perfect will of the Father swallows up sin in victory, He completes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In his death and resurrection, of course, he defeats death, but he also defeated sin. His sacrifice, again, was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and where no other offering or provision of the law could make do or satisfy the Father, his could. Right? So he sets aside the sacrifices there utterly powerless to fully and finally and decisively deal with sin, he abides perfectly in doing the will of the Father, and through his sacrifice, he actually makes it possible for us to be made holy. That's kind of the crazy thing about this passage, is all of that is what David's alluding to here. Though he may not see and sense the fullness of it like we do today, he is nonetheless looking towards this one who would come and make an end to the inadequate sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In some sense, he understands they could never deal with the problem of sin in his own heart, and yet nonetheless, he still dedicates himself to God. So on one end, he looks with anticipation for the day Christ is going to come. He's going to make an end to this system he knew was never designed to last. But he also recognizes the true, genuine need of a love of God. Right? He goes well beyond the external trappings of a dead faith, if you will. So in other words, David understands that even though these sacrifices are inept in one sense, in the, in the end sense, right? We need a perfect sacrifice, He also recognizes that it's inept if the one who is making an offering now has no heart behind it, if they do not trust in the Lord. So the priests could offer sacrifice after sacrifices, but if their heart was far from God, the sacrifice is to no avail. 
This is why he says elsewhere, Lord, you did not desire sacrifices, but the sacrifices are what? Of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Oh, Lord, these you do not despise. He doesn't see it as a get-out-of-jail-free card, in other words. Well, he alludes to this even in verse 6. He says, the Lord has opened up his ears. Now, what he means by here or by this is simply that he can hear, but what he hears, he actually loves. It's his delight. Well, what is that but the very word of God? In other words, God actually has his servant's ear. He has David's full attention and dedication. And this is why he says in verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Well, what's he speaking to here? Was he speaking to the law of God in general? Well, in Israel, whenever you're made a king, each new king was given a personal copy of the book of the law. Every one of them. They were, they were to know it inside and out, not only so they could lead the nation in the fear of the Lord, but so they would actually be a righteous king, right? So when you see in the book of Judges or in Kings, when you have people that are acting wickedly, it's always because they don't know the word of God, right? They're not submitting themselves to it. But when you see a righteous king in scripture, the reason for it is simply that they actually heeded scripture. They would rule according to God's standards. They would rule according to truth, in other words. So David stands here, he says, behold, I come. And in much the same way that Isaiah stood before the Lord and said, here I am, Lord, send me. This echoes the same exact type of feeling. He's a man utterly convinced of the goodness and the righteousness of God's own decrees. He knows no half-hearted devotion will do, but he also knows that only a heart that's devoted to God and his ways, which he knows is in scripture, only that will do. Only one who submits himself to God and his word and who trusts in him and him alone will stand firm. Right? He's in the middle of a bleak situation. So he says, God, I, can know I, I know I can rely on your past faithfulness and your future faithfulness. Well, how do I know that? I know your word. I know that I can rely on you in all things because I know your word. He says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, this is verse 8. Your law is within my heart. It's within my heart. The only way he can utter such a statement is that he has actually devoted himself to knowing God and his word. It's within his heart. It's his delight. He loves the word. Now, he, these two statements are in in apposition, which just simply means that they're equal to one another. So when he says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart, that just means they're one and the same. In other words, delight in doing God's will is to have the law of the Lord upon your heart or within your heart. You cannot have one without the other. For David, reliance on God's word is not this, again, perfunctory lip service, but a wholehearted devotion and love to God. There's no divide between knowing the word and obedience. Obedience is not legalism. There's also not a divide between David's affections, though. He has made it his every delight to actually obey God. So he knows that he can have a firm foundation to stand on, not only because God is faithful, but because God has not actually left him in the dark on what it takes to please him. Just as he gave his word to David, God has given his word to us for the very same purpose, beloved. So let me just ask you, is the word your firm foundation? 
Is the word what you stand upon? I mean, I think it's, if we're honest with ourselves, it can be difficult at times to remind of God's faithfulness. But that's not as hard as just being consistently saturated in the word, is it? Because we can always find some of those rosy days that we can grab a hold of and say, see, the Lord was good here. We should never just be a person who looks at the subjective aspects of our faith and not the objective aspects of our faith. The subjective is our experience. The objective is the word. We can always see the Lord's gracious provision in our lives. But when we look at the word, we can know that even those dark and dismal days where we feel like we're opposed by the Lord, that even those are of grace. In other words, we must be a people who continually look to the word of God and order our lives into submission to it. The life of the Christian is not one of ignorant, blind faith. Blind faith will only get you so far. We must be consumed with every fiber of our being to actually know God, to know what his word says, and then to actually obey it. And this should be our delight, beloved. Well, the first reason for that is quite simple. The proper response of one who has actually seen the faithfulness of God firsthand is a love of his word. That's the first natural response. The second reason we must be a people of the word is that it's one of the greatest ways God has actually given us to persevere. When you stand upon the word of God, you stand on firm ground. Right? You stand upon the truth. When the lies of this age come as fiery darts against you, the one who reads the word and obeys the word and loves the word will stand firm. You will flourish in the midst of evil days because you'll be grounded in the eternal, unchanging word of God. You may find yourself crushed at some point. You you will not despair though. You may find yourself opposed on every side, but you will recall you are not forsaken. You may even find yourself in a situation you know will bring your life to an end, and yet, in all of it, you will still have hope, because you know that even though this life will depart from you, the one to come is far greater than even your best day here. You will flourish, in other words, in spite of everything that attacks you and assaults you, because you will stand on firm ground. You will never find a Christian then who flourishes apart from the word. It's an oxymoron. Let me make it as as blunt as I possibly can. One of the clearest indications you trust in the Lord, that you delight in God himself, is that you love his word. You delight yourself in his commands. I will never understand the one who will look to everything else in this world to bring them hope and stability except the word. Christian, it is the one thing that you know without a doubt that has been given to you from God himself that is objective, that you can look out without fail and know it is true. But do you believe that? Here in our hands, every single day, we have a collection of 66 books that countless men and women have literally been persecuted and killed over just so we could have a copy. These guys knew that their lives were expendable in comparison to the word. 
They knew that it was only the word of God that will reorient your heart and mind to truth and to God himself. It will lead you to remember his faithfulness much, much easier and more than our own subjective experiences because our, our hearts can lie and deceive us, right? It will lead you to wonder and praise because it will always place you in the realm of objective biblical truth delivered from God himself. It will always lead you to rejoice in God himself. And you might not experience a mountaintop emotional roller coaster that everybody feels that you must have if you're faithful to reading the Bible. But if you are in Christ and you are in the word, you will be grounded. You will be assured. You will be steadfast in all things because the word itself will be the one thing that speaks into your life and guides you in utmost surety. I beg you, if you're one who doesn't open the word, I beg you, I literally beg you to just open the book and make it your delight to learn it and obey it. Do you not see on every single side in this age right now that the word of God is under attack from everything, everything, and some of you still won't open it? Countless times in history, the church has faced incredibly dark days, savage days where the word is hidden or it's neglected or it's rejected or it's scorned even by many who claim to love God. And yet we are in such days now and some simply don't see that. Oh, men and women of God, will you not rise and defend those ancient truths once more? Will you take up and read with me? Such a simple thing. Beloved, if, if, if you cannot take up and read, how will you stand firm in the days to come? Even if there's no further opposition to the Christian faith, how will you stand when the, the rug is swept out from underneath you and you're delivered news that just shatters you? If you do not stand on the word of God, how will you stand? And yet, a love of the word will, will prove nothing if you do not love the one who gave the word. Right? The, the first firm foundation is one of God's faithfulness. The second firm foundation is one of God's word. The third firm foundation is God's character, God himself. Well, this is what we see now in verses 9 through 10. Now, this, this section marks an abrupt shift. David begins to actually make his requests known to God. He wants to be saved. Again, he's in that pit of despair once again. We're going to see why shortly, but for now, I want you to simply see how he, he makes his needs known to God. Notice he doesn't start with his request, but he begins by showing proof of prior praise. He says, I have proclaimed, past tense, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation, behold, I will not restrain my lips. Oh, Lord, you know. He points out he's made the good news of God's salvation known to the whole congregation, right? This, this mighty throng of people. And he says in insinuation, if you deliver me again, that's going to happen once more. It's going to result in all the more praise of who you are. And so every time David has been in the pit of despair or in peril, he is always reached out to God, and when he's delivered, what else has he done but given more and more praise to God? 
I mean, the entirety of the book of Psalms is one big hymn book, one big book of praise. So in many cases, just like our psalm today, the circumstances, again, are, are vague enough for us all to kind of relate to it or to insert ourselves in it in some sense. We've all sunk down into a miry pit, whether it's literal or metaphorical. I don't know if you guys, when you were kids, ever played in a mud pit and you're starting to sink down and you're freaking out like, what the heck's going to happen here? I might actually die. Well, I remember that as a kid, I cried out to God. I wasn't even a Christian at the time, but it's like I'm literally sinking into a mud pit that my parents told me never to go nearby. And well, I'm here today, but whether it's literal or metaphorical, you know that sense. We've all experienced the goodness of the Lord if we're in Christ, especially. If you're in Christ, you, have a, you should have a natural love of his word. You should have a desire to obey his commands. And then every Sunday when we gather for worship, we share those sweet moments, do we not, as one people who are bought by the blood of Christ, where we sing praises to our King. We hear the word given as uh, scripture reading and prayer takes place. We hear all the lyrics that bring to mind all that God has done and he has always done and will always do. And then we get to sit under the preaching of the word in which we still see the same thing. And everything we do, it's designed, if you didn't know, for worship. It's designed to show a true and proper worship of who God is and what he's done. We know that God is concerned with worship. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here in this section. David's first concern, in other words, is proper worship. He wants God to get all the more glory because he knows that God's concern is that he gets the glory. So before he even asks what he wants, he begins with this promise, right? Behold, I will not restrain my lips. And David can actually say this, right? He's, God, I've been faithful to sing your praises before. If you save me now, I'm going to do it again. I can't help it, right? He knows that he can make this bold of a claim because his track record is actually unparalleled in this. Simply flip through the book of Psalms and you'll see it. Even when David is in those darkest moments of despair, he still turns a corner to praise every single time. Well, he continues to highlight this in in verse 10. And I really want you to notice all of the ways that David simply piles on the terms and he speaks so highly of God, right? Notice first where it starts though. Again, in verse 10, it starts within the heart. It says, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. Well, when the Old Testament speaks of the heart of man, it speaks to the very core of who he is. We tend to think it's the emotions, right? This is the place where your emotions come from or your feelings come from. But in scripture, it paints the reality that the heart is really the wellspring from which everything else flows. And so your intellect, your emotions, your beliefs, your affections, everything comes from the heart. It is, in other words, what makes you who you are, what informs why you do the things you do, why you love the things you do, and even why you do the things you do. Well, what David refers to here is the same exact idea. It's even what Christ referred to when he spoke to the fact that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So notice what speaks from David's mouth. David believes at the very core of his being that God is righteous, that he is fair and just and good in everything he does, and he can't help but praise him for it. He says, look at how I'm going to praise you if you save me. Notice how the righteousness of the Lord, though, expands here in verse 10. It speaks of all sorts of different qualities of God. David's spoken of God's faithfulness, his salvation, his loving kindness, and his truth. 
And he does so before this great congregation of people. Well, by faithfulness, David speaks to the fact that God is steadfast. He is trustworthy and true in all he does. Right? This is the same reality that is depicted in Psalm 102, verse 27, where he says, or the psalmist says, but you, O God, remain the same and your years will never end. God's unchanging. Right? It speaks to the fact that he's unchanging. Where everything else shifts, everything else decays and pulls apart, and we never know what direction it's going to go in, God is the same. He is one who always stands firm and he is always consistent. And therefore, we can trust that from one day to the next, he will never be different towards us. The word that comes to my mind is stability. Right? In a world of constant change, God is the same. Well, then he speaks of salvation. And by salvation, he speaks to the fact that God's a saving God. That's a simple enough one. But the word he uses here refers to both his immediate and eternal salvation. So, right, God is faithful to save him in the here and now, but also at the end of all days when he knows he must stand before the Lord. In other words, God's great work of salvation encompasses every bit of life and death. In a nutshell, David knows that even if all else fails, God will bring him to the next. That's what he's referring to here in this salvation. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We know that the Lord is capable of delivering us from the fire, and yet even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. David's circumstances are different here, right? He's not facing Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he is in the miry pit. Even if he does not get delivered out of the miry pit, he knows God will save him. By loving kindness, he speaks to the reality that God is, again, always faithful, but this time to his covenant. Right, the Hebrew word here is chesed. It speaks of God's utter covenant faithfulness. It's his utter covenant love that he will never forsake, never. It's a loyal love. It's not subjected to feelings or anything that's worthy within the people. In other words, it would be what we call grace. It's undeserved kindness, but specifically born out of his promise. Right? It's a promise-keeping love that God sets upon those whom he loves under the basis of his free expression of grace and sovereign choice. It has nothing to do with them. And it means ultimately that God is always faithful to his covenant. He cannot, in other words, violate his promise. He can't pull it back. It would be contrary to who he is. By truth, he again emphasizes the fact that God is steadfast, but this time, in light of his word. Truth, in other words, is the very self-expression of God. God is truth. Anything that is true comes from God. It is a reality that he has created and defined and given us everything that is true to know. And therefore, apart from him, we can't even know what's true. We might stumble by common grace onto some aspect of truth, yet we will never know to its fullness More than this, though, it speaks to God's sure promises again. Now think of Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. It says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's an absolute guarantee. But in all of these things, he recounts the fullness of who God is and it brings him nothing but delight. 
nothing but delight. For David, God's character is the foundation upon which everything else stands or falls. Everything else. So the firmest foundation that any one of us have is God himself. From, from him, all other things flow. It's really the reason why we can trust that God is faithful. It is the reason why we can look to the word and trust that it is true. It is because God himself is the embodiment of these things. And if he were not, we would have no reason to rejoice. We would have no reason for hope. But because he is, we have every reason for hope and joy. We have every reason to stand firm, even when all else is sinking sand, because God himself is our rock. It leads me to say that if all of our Bible reading, if all of our listening to sermons, if all of our note-taking, if all of our book reading and praying and everything else we can do in a Christian life does not lead to a further love of God himself, it is in vain. It's useless. There is a vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. It's not simply enough to know facts about God. It's not enough to just simply agree to those facts. We must love them. We must love them. God is merely an abstract theological concept for you. Then simply put, you have yet to know him. Sadly, until you do know him, you will never come to the point of trusting him. And you will never, ever be on solid ground. Because all it will be is just different factoids. It will never be a point of saying, this is my sure foundation when everything else fails. Beloved, it is on the very basis of who God is that we can trust him. It's on the very basis of who God is that we can look to his word and know that it's true. It's on the very basis of who God is that we do anything in the Christian life. If God is not consistent to who he is, why do you serve him? But it's also the reason you can trust him to help you when you actually need it. That's the fourth and final firm foundation is that God actually helps his children. That's a, that's a crazy thing, isn't it? We, we now look at the final seven verses of the psalm, and I'm going to go through them rather rapidly here. But understand that it is on the basis of all these things prior that now David moves to confidence to ask his God for help. Right? In light of everything else he has said about who God is, he can now say, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. So in spite of the circumstances he finds himself in, he has every bit of confidence to trust God. He knows God will have compassion and rescue him. He knows it would be impossible for God to forsake his servant and it'd be impossible for him not to be moved to compassion, in other words. If God is faithful to his covenant, if God is true, if God is uh, everything he says he is, then I have every reason to trust him. I have every reason to believe he will be compassionate because God says he is compassionate. Notice why David says this, though, right? So look down. He says in verse 12, For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities or sins have overtaken me, so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has even failed me. In everything, he is desperate and helpless. 
perhaps even more so than he was before, right? He's just this web of tangled evils that surround him on every side. His sins have overtaken him. They're more numerous than the hairs of his head. And he says the result is that evil is on every side. No wonder his heart has failed him. And yet his confidence in God is not utterly destroyed. He knows that God is who he says he is and he trusts him. And so therefore David simply casts himself on his mercy. Notice what he says in the very next verse in 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. It's a simple plea of great hope and confidence, but it's in God himself. David knows that God will not abandon him. He's promised that he won't, right? He has this very specific covenant in which God has sworn with him. And so he knows that God will not let him suffer decay or go down to the ground without his aid. He knows that he'll be moved to compassion on his servant. In other words, he will make good on his promise to David, even in spite of David's own folly. And so he just simply asks, Lord, would you be pleased to do that? And act quickly. I have very little time to live. Notice though, he doesn't simply suffer evil of his own doing, right? That's part of what's going on here in 12 through 13. It's his own sins brought this on him once again, but 14 and 15, he says, let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let them be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let them be appalled because of their shame to me who say, aha, aha. These are men that are gloating against David and wish to kill him, right? He asks an imprecatory prayer here. We've gone through that before, but if you don't remember what an imprecatory prayer is, it's literally a prayer for judgment. The reason he does this is because he knows that these men are literally rising up to kill him, but he also knows he is not to take vengeance. So the reason he asks for destruction, though, is really simple. God has promised to curse those who curse Israel. God has promised to bless those who bless Israel. So he says, Lord, would you make good on your promise? These are men who are literally seeking to kill him. Would you put a stop to them? Behind this, again, is this reality that David knows well, and that is that ultimately God protects his people. He's helpless against these men. He also knows he's not to take vengeance. And so he just entrusts himself to the vengeance of God and asks for his help. He knows God has rescued his people from every other foe in times past. But notice he doesn't just request God's help in delivering him from his sin or even just his enemies here. In the final two verses, he requests God's help in his weakness, in his affliction and need. Verses 16 through 17. Look down with me. He begins here by asking that God would allow all of the saints to rejoice and to be glad in him, that they would continually say the Lord be magnified. So again, notice there's two very specific things he prays for. The first is that they would delight or be brought to rejoice in God himself. The second is that they would rejoice in God's salvation. In either case, though, his desire is that God would be magnified. Now, we we tend to think of magnified and we say, maybe God is talking about, or David's talking about making God appear to be larger than he is, like a magnifying glass, right? You hold it to something small, it appears larger. In reality, what he's talking about is let God be seen as truly big as he is. We have comprehension problems, in other words. So let him be magnified. We face the very real dilemma of seeing God as small. 
We forget his great mercy. We become distracted with all the shiny baubles and trinkets. We are content in so many ways with the sin that even put Christ to the cross. And yet our true delight is to be in God. And so David's prayer for his people is, let you be magnified in their sight. What David desires is that not only would God save him, but that in so doing that God would actually be built up all the more in the sight of his people that they would see this great salvation and give God all the more praise, that they would see him as truly large and as glorious and as kind and as merciful as he is. He knows how helpless his situation is. He says, I'm powerless to do anything about it. May they rejoice in your salvation. Save me, God, because I can't do it. But may it be turned to praise. May you be magnified, in other words, in the sight of your people. Let your glory be seen. We see this as we come to verse 17 all the more. He says, since I am afflicted and needy. Again, going back to what even Tony said earlier in his psalm, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. Do not delay. The words he uses here are weighty. He's speaking as an utterly destitute and and helpless man. But it's on the simple basis of this plea, he makes a confession. You are my help. You are my deliverer. You, O Lord, are these things to me. You are able to save. You are able to help. I know you will do it. Do not delay, O Lord. Whether it's due to him recognizing the full weight of his sin or it's something different, again, we really don't know. We know in part that's because he's seen enemies rise against him. We know in part he's sensing his weakness. Ultimately, David does the one thing he knows he can do, which is cry out to God himself because God is his help. God is his deliverer. He's come to the end of his rope, but he knows he's not able to do a thing about it. He knows, in other words, he's never been the guy who can save himself. The beautiful thing is he knows that God pities the weak. God pities the weak. God has always been faithful, David says. God's word has always been true, he says. God's character has always been impeccable. So I know that I can stand on firm ground in asking him for help. God is my salvation. God is my deliverer. And so my simple question to all of you in light of this is, is this the same for you? In other words, do you stand on solid ground? We're all going to find ourselves in, in a pit at some point. Whether it's simply due to our own sin, whether it's due to being thrust into a pit, we're all going to face that reality. There are no sons without sorrow, but there's also no sons without sin. And so the question is, are you one who is dancing along the edge or playing in the muck? Or are you one who cries out to the Lord for help? But if you are the Christian who finds themselves deep in sin, I just ask you now, this is the third sermon in a row We've touched on really an incredibly sober issue. When will you humble yourself and just ask him for help? 
But when will you look upon your God as the source of joy, the source of all comfort and peace, rather than your sin? The sin will bring you nothing but mock. If you're one who finds themselves in a pit due to circumstances simply outside of your control, would you just join me in remembering how faithful God is? How utterly faithful he is. Oh, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He cares for you more than you can even see. Think of the love you have of parents of, of your children and how much you would do anything for them. You know, you would not sin for them, of course, if you're in Christ, because that's like, that's stupid. But you would do everything you can for them. God loves you even more than you'll ever love your kids. More than you can fathom. He knows your doubts. He knows your heartaches. He knows your fears. And just as he saved you when you first cried out to him for help, when you realized your sin, he will save you yet again. That doesn't mean all of the problems will will be whisked away necessarily, but it does mean that there is an eternal, unfailing joy and hope that could never be robbed of you no matter what gets taken from you here. Our heavenly inheritance can never be stripped of us. Remember his past faithfulness, but look ahead. Remember all he promises to do. Recount his faithfulness, yet recount those promises that he has made. Perhaps you're also the one who's never actually trusted in God. You're realizing now I've just simply been in the pit my whole life. I'm sinking down and down and down, and I can't do anything to get myself out of it. You don't have to sink down to your death. Your sins may be as numerous as the hairs on your head, but God's mercies are far too numerous to count. He says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this day, cast yourself on his mercy. Cry out to him. Let, be, let this be the first among many days where you stand upon God's faithfulness to save. Well, as a closing note, remember that Christ is all of these things and more. Christ is the literal embodiment or the fullness of all of these things, all aspects of these four firm foundations. He is the embodiment of God's faithfulness. Not only did he walk in perfect, obedient life, obeying the will of the Father so that he might faithfully go to the cross and die on your behalf, but he is always and ever faithful now. He will be the one who returns in perfect faithfulness to make good on the promises of God and end sin, death, and Satan once and for all. Right? He is the incarnation of, his, of God's word. He is the very divine logos. He is the God with us. Everything that he spoke is true. We have the scriptures because of him and because of the attendancy of the spirit. Third, he is the perfect likeness of God's being. Right? He was God himself in the fullness of deity dwelling in human flesh. He was the exegete of the Father, if you will. He made the Father known in perfect likeness. If you see Christ, you see the Father. And fourthly, he is our great helper. 
He is our sympathetic high priest. In every single aspect, he knows not only our weaknesses and our struggles and our pains and our temptations, but he knows us intimately. He was the one who was without sin that can now stand before the Father, and he can take your jumbled and messed up prayers and by the help of the Spirit transform them into something that not only God will hear, but will actually accept because he intercedes on your behalf. Because Jesus died in your place and rose again, you have a constant great high priest who is always and ever faithful to bring you up before the Father. And on that last great day, he will present you with much joy, blameless before the Father. That's incredible. These are four firm foundations you can stand on, all of them the fullness of Christ. As you go and depart today, remember that. As you face the obstacles and trials of life, remember that. As you sense the depth of your sin, remember that. Nothing else in this life will deliver. Nothing else in this life will save. Nothing else will provide you anything but sinking sand to stand upon. But in God, you have every reason to trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word this day. We thank you that you are incredibly merciful to us, that you have given us so much, that through the sacrifice of your son, you have not only given us forgiveness, but that you have given us all the benefits of being sons and daughters. I pray now as we go about this week that we would not forget your, your mercy and your kindness to us. We would not forget our great high priest in Christ. We would not forget that we have a glorious future that awaits us. And as much as we may be tempted to look upon this life for hope and comfort and ease, that nothing in it will give it to us. The only sure guarantee we have is Christ and Christ himself. And so I pray that as we simply go about this week and all other weeks in our lives that you have ordained, that we would cast all of our cares on Christ and trust in him as a sure and sole foundation of our faith. Cause us to persevere to the end that we might stand before you with great joy and sing your praises forevermore. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.